This passage in Luke 2, 1 through 14, teaches us about the true king. By now we're used to Christmas, starting right after Thanksgiving, but maybe not so much used to campaigning this far before the elections. But we get a good contrast in this passage between politics and Christmas. And I mean this is no offense to any particular candidate, well, maybe, maybe a few. <laughs> But the strident political rhetoric that attracts the most public attention is not the way of God's kingdom. It's not the way of the one who didn't exploit his rightful status of equality with God, but instead humbled himself, took on him the form of a servant, and became obedient even to the form of death. We have a stark contrast in chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, between Caesar, who kicks off this story, and Christ, who's the real hero. Now, I think some people go too far with reading imperial ideas into everything in the New Testament, but this is one passage where I think it's present. It starts with a decree from Caesar Augustus in verse 1. Unlike Jesus, Augustus is throwing his power around. So, uh, first of all, the, the reason for the decree is a tax census. So its purpose is tax revenue. So as we think a little bit about what that was like, don't complain so much about the IRS. It was conducted in different times, in different places. People would go to register where they owned property, and the money was used for roads and armies and, and displays of Roman power. But it also was associated among many people with oppression. For example, in Judea, there was a tax revolt in the year six, uh, they didn't really appreciate these taxes. And in the wake of that revolt, Sephoris, one of the two leading cities of Galilee, was burned to the ground. So when you read about Jesus and Joseph being carpenters, it's not hard to understand that because uh, a city just four miles from Nazareth was burned to the ground and they started rebuilding right afterwards. They needed a few carpenters and bricklayers. Tax collectors also in the Gospels don't appear in a very positive light. And you can understand that too if you know more about what we know about tax collectors in that period. Tax collectors were allowed to search anything except the person of a Roman matron. They, uh, the surviving business documents, which are mostly from Egypt, show that sometimes if they wanted to, to locate a tax fugitive, they, they beat up his his elderly mother, just to find out where he'd fled. In fact, the uh, business documents from Egypt show us that on multiple occasions, various villages would skip town and go start a village somewhere else when they heard the tax collectors were coming. Well, who was Augustus? He was the most powerful ruler that the Roman world had ever known. He, he relished public honor. You can see this especially in his brag sheet the rest Gesti Divi Augusti. Supposedly he was a military hero, but actually he was pretty much a coward who let other people do his fighting for him. But he, he boasted that he had established the Pax Romana, that th throughout the Roman Empire now there would be peace and that he was ruler of the, of the known world. Well, everybody knew that was just fictitious propaganda. They knew they hadn't conquered the Parthians to the east. They knew of other peoples that they hadn't conquered. but. He was, he was very good at propaganda. He seems to be the prime mover of this narrative. 
He gives his decree, and everybody goes to the places where they're supposed to go. They have a massive temporary migration movement. And it's, it's a major movement. Luke often uses hyperbole, and he's using hyperbole here when he says all the world went to be registered. But it underlines the point, massive movement. And yet, as the narrative goes on, we see that it's not really Augustus who's in control, but God is the one who orchestrates this narrative. In verses 2 through 4, we read about a different king, the lowly and unwelcome king. And this text emphasizes Jesus' kingship. In verse 4, it emphasizes Joseph as a descendant of David. That is, this is the royal lineage, and Jesus is the adoptive son of Joseph, is of the royal line. And this fits a motif that's been running already through the infancy narrative before this. Gabriel, in chapter 1 and verse 32, God's son will rule from the throne of his ancestor David. Zechariah prophesied in 169 about the Savior from the house of David. The angel in chapter 2 and verse 11, just after this, in David's town, a Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. Yet he doesn't receive a big welcome, we see in verse 7. Now, <clears throat> it might be the issue of hospitality, some, some have argued that, or it might just be the difficulties of, of poverty. Uh, we're, we're used to, in verse 7, hearing people talk about no room in the inn, and that makes for a good moral about hospitality. But unfortunately, the, the word that's translated in there just means a lodging. So it may not be the lack of the innkeeper's hospitality. It may be the relatives, which could preach even better. <laughs> but it may, it, may, it may just be that, that Mary needs a place that's less crowded to give birth. In any case, this is definitely not a rich household, at least not before the Magi dropped off some presents, you know, which comes much later. Crowding was common in towns and in villages. In fact, going back to those Egyptian business documents, a family of 10 might rent a quarter of a room. That's, that's how crowded things could sometimes be. But it wasn't a matter of urgency in finding a place. Um, in the movies, we always see it's right after their arrival but rather Luke says it's while they were there, so after they'd already arrived. The manger, also in verse seven, could be translated different ways, but the term appears only one other place in the New Testament. It's, it's Luke's usage also in Luke 13, 15, stalls where an ox and a donkey are tied. Now, compared to a palace, like the palace from which Augustus ruled, or the palace from which Herod the Great ruled, this was not a place of honor for a human being. Uh, this was before the Kentucky Derby, of course. <laughs> Swaddling cloths, uh, they were just meant to keep the, the limbs straight. That, that was fairly ordinary. But being born in a manger was uh, not fairly ordinary. And the tradition is that the manger was in a cave out behind the house. And there's some, some reasons for, for that tradition that I think are, are fairly compelling. The tradition goes back at least to the early second century. But the people who are invited to celebrate this birth are not nobles and officials, but shepherds. This was about six miles. Bethlehem was about six miles from Jerusalem, so many of the sheep may have been used for sacrifices. But shepherds were lowly and despised. You wouldn't think of that reading the Old Testament. I mean, in the Old Testament, you've got David, you've got Moses, you've got Amos, you've got Jacob. They were all shepherds. But in Jewish and Roman urban culture, shepherds were despised. 
choirs praised Augustus on his birthday each year. But contrast here, the shepherds were the ones who were chosen. I mean, shepherds are, are, are then, they go out and tell everybody what they've seen. But shepherds, like women, their testimony was mistrusted in court. Yet God chose shepherds as witnesses of Jesus' birth and, and women as witnesses that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was risen. This fits a pattern of contrasts that runs through the narrative. Contrasts that we've already noticed with the settings of Caesar and Christ. It's not accidental. It fits Luke's careful design of this narrative and it's shown in the preceding context. If you look at the opening narrative of this gospel, you have a contrast between godly Zechariah and godly Mary. Not all contrasts in, in ancient rhetoric or biographies were between bad and good. Often they were between something that was good and something that was better. And that's the case with Zechariah and Mary. You have this aged male priest in the temple sanctuary. He would be highly respected. And then you have this young teenage girl in the village of Nazareth. Which one would hold higher status in the eyes of people in their day? Yet Luke sets up a detailed comparison in the narrative. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 12, Zechariah is troubled when the angel appears to him. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 29, Mary is also troubled when the angel appears to her. In, in both cases, Gabriel says, do not be afraid. And then in both cases, he gives the reason for the miracle that's to come. In both cases, then, he gives the name of the child, John in the one case and Jesus in the other. In, in both cases, he goes on in 115 and in 132 to say this child will be great. In 115, in 115, the child will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. In 135, Jesus is, is greater, of course. He will be conceived through the Holy Spirit. 116 and 17 and 132 and 33, the mission is laid out for each of them. And then in each case, whether it's Zechariah or, or Mary, they respond with a question, and then the angel responds with a proof or an explanation. So the narrative is carefully structured to show a parallel between these two. And yet the parallel also issues in the contrast because in chapter 1 and verse 20, Zechariah is muted because of his unbelief. Whereas in 138 and 45, Mary is praised for her faith. And so the one who had less status in the eyes of people was the one who was exalted more in the sight of God. And that fits the theme of the infancy narrative as a whole. We've, we find it stressed in Mary's song as she praises God. What's big in human sight differs from what's big in God's sight. Mary's inspired song emphasizes God exalting the lowly. Uh, it, it, it echoes Hannah's song. You remember Hannah in, in 1 Samuel where uh, Panina, her rival, has been making fun of her because Hannah has no children. And then God gives Hannah a child and, and eventually gives her more children. And because of this, Hannah praises God for exalting the lowly. And, and here are some themes that appear both in 1 Samuel 2 where she praises God and Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. And I'm not going to do all of these, but just the ones that are relevant to this theme. In each case, they, they speak of how God exalts the lowly, and the proud are brought down. And in each case, the, in, in one, the, it's the poor versus the rich, and the other, the rich are sent away empty-handed. In one, it's the hungry versus the full, and the other, how Mary celebrates how God has filled the hungry. 
In the one case, the poor displaced nobles, dunastone uh, in the Greek translation of 1 Samuel 2.8. And Mary praises God for bringing down rulers and uses the same Greek term in Luke 1.52. And it also fits a contrast between <clears throat> in 1 Samuel between Hannah and Eli, the, the high priest, because he seems to be the person of status. I mean, he prays for her, she goes away, she thinks, okay, now I'm gonna have this child, and she's very happy. But you go on to read the narrative, she came to God with a pure heart, and Eli was not even obeying God. So that, again, fits this contrast between Zechariah and Mary, although Zechariah is portrayed much, much more nicely than Eli was. So, we have the, this emphasis on the exaltation of the humble, and we see this in the case of Jesus in this narrative. He's hailed by heaven in chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. He was lowly and humanized, born in a manger, but God's verdict is what really matters. We read about the heavenly choirs at Jesus' birth, and it, and it just reinforces this contrast between Jesus and Caesar. Augustus was the emperor of the Mediterranean world. Jesus, the true Davidic king, is destined to rule all of creation. Augustus was in a palace. Jesus was born in an animal feeding trough. Earthly choirs praised Augustus, but heavenly choirs praised Jesus at his birth. The empire celebrated the emperor's birthday. Heaven and lowly shepherds celebrated the true king's birth. Augustus boasted that he had established the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, but Jesus is associated with peace on earth. Augustus was hailed as a savior and a lord, but the angel of the Lord announces, today there has been born for you a savior, Christ the Lord. Augustus was attended by the powerful. Jesus' birth was attended by shepherds, a socially marginal group, and the hosts of heaven. Augustus held the highest status in the Mediterranean world. Jesus was born to a young Galilean couple and what could have appeared if anybody recognized that she was already pregnant when he brought his betrothed into account, a scandalous situation. The lowly will be exalted. We might think of Hollywood celebrities or the rich and the powerful, and God can use them too if they're willing, but God is not impressed with our worldly status. What matters most is what God thinks of us. That's the verdict that will last forever. And we see this theme running throughout Luke's gospel. <clears throat> Mary, in chapter 1 and verse 52, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Jesus talks about blessed are the poor and, and woe to you who are rich. Uh, chapter 10 and verse 15, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be thrust down to Hades. 1411, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 1615, what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. 1814, I tell you, this tax collector went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. God is the one whose favor matters. And, and this, this language that we have about the exaltation of the lowly, I mean, you already have it uh, a number of times in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 2, where God will humble the proud in his day of judgment, or Ezekiel 21, exalt that which is low, abase that which is high. What we see in this narrative then is a different kind of king who brings a different kind of kingdom. 
And that too, we can understand as we look at the, the whole of Luke's gospel. The, the reason I, I don't want to just isolate the passage from the rest of the gospel is, I mean, the first hearers of this and what Luke would have expected when he wrote this, they would hear the whole gospel being read. They wouldn't hear it isolated one passage from another. So they would see how this passage intersects these themes that run through the gospel. The, the true kingdom, the kingdom of God, in 1319, it came as a mustard seed, a mustard seed that was hidden to the powerful and those obsessed with what looks big in the eyes of people. A kingdom for children and blind beggars, see, emphasizes that in a, in a whole section in chapter 18. In 1815, disciples acting like, uh, like Elisha's disciple in the Old Testament, disciples tried to keep children from Jesus. In that society, children lacked social power. The advertisers weren't marketing to kids back then. And the disciples think Jesus has important business. I mean, he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to set up the kingdom, he doesn't have time for this. Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In the, in the very next paragraph, Jesus shocks the disciples by repelling a rich ruler who was unwilling to donate his goods to the poor and follow as a disciple. Jesus goes on to explain to the disciples that the kingdom belongs to those who sacrifice everything for Jesus. So to the persecuted, to those who maybe abandon their livelihoods to come to seminary or whatever. Crowds then try to keep a blind beggar from Jesus in the very next paragraph. But Jesus restores, calls the man, and then he restores his sight. He says, because of your faith. And what faith? He was confessing, you're the son of, son of David. In other words, he recognized his king. He was, he was not obsessed with power. He could recognize what the king really was and what the kingdom really was about. And that, that fits Jesus' mission. His mission was for the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. Chapter 4 and verse 18, where his mission is, is spelled out using the words of the prophet Isaiah. In other words, he's reaching out to those who are outsiders to power. There was no political advantage in hanging out with these people. Jesus wasn't courting the powerful. In fact, he alienated the priestly elite who controlled Jerusalem. He's quoting from Isaiah 61 in chapter 4 and verse 18. And the context in Isaiah is the promise of restoration, promise of a, of a new creation, new heavens and a new earth. And the good news of restoration, the good news of peace, the good news, Isaiah 52, 7, our God reigns, the good news of God's kingdom. Jesus is first called king in this gospel in 1938, where the crowds at the triumphal entry crowd, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Sounds very much like what the angels said earlier. And yet in 2338, finally and ultimately in the gospel, the announcement of Jesus' kingship is as he hangs on the cross. This is the king of the Jews, crowned with thorns. And yet now, the one who humbled himself to the point of death is exalted king of kings and lord of lords, and all the, all the universe must submit to his reign. Augustus was cremated to ashes, but Jesus is alive forever. Which king will we worship? Which kingship matters most to us. Today, many of us like to hobnob with the powerful. And in my own case, I, 
I was telling my PhD students recently, right after SBL, it's a biblical studies conference, <clears throat> how in my early days of going to SBL, I, I would, I would uh, meet some of these famous New Testament scholars. I, I'd meet people like Martin Hengel or James Dunn or Ben Witherington. <clears throat> and, and some of them were very humble uh, themselves, but I was so excited to meet these, these important biblical scholars that I was like, I almost went into a trance. <clears throat> the same thing would happen uh, one seminary where I taught the the, the bishops of the AME Zion Church would come, and I would, I would be just, you know, uh, I'd try to act not too nervous, but I was nervous in front of all these bishops. And then uh, the Anglican Archbishop of Uganda sometimes would visit us for my wife's uh, excellent cassava leaves, but also because his daughter was my TA. <clears throat> uh, but he was a very humble man. Our, our son was a little boy. He played with our son. But I was awestruck. Uh, and... It wasn't his fault. But, but sometimes, sometimes it's hard to remember that people of status are people just like us, that in God's sight, we're all the same. We're all just flesh and blood people. But the true king is still found among the broken and the lowly. In the favelas of Brazil, in Nairobi's Kibera slum, or the slums of Manila, among the AIDS orphans in Mozambique, the lepers of India, rape victims in the Eastern DRC, the refugees of Southern Sudan, Northern Nigeria, Iraq, Syria, the developmentally disabled. Jesus first comes to the broken and the lowly. And if we want to experience his presence, we'll experience his presence most fully among the broken and the lowly. Because scripture says, He's near to the broken, near to the humble, but far from the proud. It's Augustus versus Jesus. Which king and which kingdom will you serve?